0: Ken Harris returns along with PIs Steve Rockfish and Johnny McGee with A Bad Bout of the Yips from the Case Files of Steve Rockfish 3 from Black Rose Writing. Rockfish and McGee uncover a laser-focused plan of intimidation targeting their clients via vandalism and intolerance. The return of an old nemesis compels them to fight on two fronts. The frantic ride traverses from a corporate setting across cyberspace and to a showdown where everything changes for the partners. Check out the first two adventures, the Pine Baron Stratagem, and See You Next Tuesday, available in paperback and audio, and Ken is working on case number four. They're coming soon. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. <laughs> I'm TG Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, who's having way too much fun with his piano <laughs> and my producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with the original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Some episodes are original stories, and others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. All are structured to challenge you to beat the detective to the solution. These are arrangements, as you just found out, which means instead of word for word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back. No breaks, no fakes, no retakes. For season six, Jack and I have again decided to go ad free. I do this because I love mysteries, and Jack does it because he loves me. Jack may be a starving college student, but don't worry too much about him. He's got his banana Hawaiian shirt on today, so he's good. We do ask that you support the writers of our show. This week, it's Ken Harris. Check him out on his website and social. Buy and read his stories. They're really awesome. And help other readers find him. Make writing for mysteries to die for the best decision he could have made. And in your review, tell him Tina and Jack said, Live free! This is Season 6, Things That Go Jack in the Night. This season contains truly imaginative mysteries around one of the most common words in the English language. From the brandy distilled from hard cider known as Applejack, to that nefarious one-eyed jack, to the animals, vegetables, fruits, tools, weapons, and slang, the way the word jack is used in the English language is truly unique and inventive, and too numerous for me to count. Yes, it's also the name of my piano player and producer. First, episode 7, Jacking, uh, er, off, is the featured Jack. This is Live Free or Die Jacking by Ken Harris. Nature Jack Gone Bad. Kaylee listened for the deadbolt behind her before hitting her play list. Her AirPods kicked in and she headed down the front steps. She jogged most evenings since moving to Jeanville. Staying fit was a necessity for the new spokesmodel for the nationally marketed Farmers National Reverse Mortgage. The company desired to move away from the aging action hero and instead focus sales on horny old men needing cash. To her untrained eye, the outfit seemed to get smaller with each commercial. At the bottom of the stoop, Kaylee stretched. A foot away, the streetlight lit two newspaper boxes on the edge of the sidewalk. Competing headlights caught her attention. The Jeanville beacon highlighted the start of preparations for the upcoming Jeanville Fall Festival. The Gloucester Register sold fear in order to drive paper sales. Locust Valley Park flasher spotted again. And in smaller print below, City to host Gadsden Group Anti Woke March. Kylie had jogged in Locust Valley for most of the public masturbator's run, but she had yet to catch a glimpse. Not that it was on her bucket list. The news reported the senior citizen equivalent of the Guardian Angels now patrolled the park's walkways on the lookout with canes, mobility scooters, and a pocketful of butterscotch candy. Go get him, Kylie thought. The police also increased patrols in the area, hoping to scare off the pervert. Now, that's a double entendre and a half. Time to get moving." She started off in the park's direction and made note to heighten her awareness. Not on the chance of a rogue, unsheathed penis making an unwanted appearance, but the influx of walkers and the lost life alert bracelets on the pathway, pathways. Kaylee passed the SpongeBob thing playground for her second circuit around the park. Two miles down, one lap to go, she thought, She couldn't have moved to Jeanville at a better time. Even at night, with the moon and the lamppost, the fall foliage and the rocky terrain provided a beautiful landscape, except for the perv. But lap one was uneventful, no strange penis protruding from a bush and the silver apostles had given her plenty of room. Despite those positives, the one thing she had noticed was the man trying to keep pace with her, no matter how she changed hers up. Creep was more like it, she thought, The Dallas Cowboys sweatshirt and matching beanie stood out. Not your normal jogging accessory. And this was Eagles country. The guy was just asking for a verbal assault. He reminded her of those she met in last year's Infocon, where she and other infomercial stars signed autographs and pretended to make small talk with, quote, fans. Each hoped for eye contact, the touch of a hand, or a signed headshot, one they could decorate in their own special way. Christ. What if he's the perv, Wanted to get close enough to get a good whiff before heading off the uh, beaten path? Double entendre, take two. Kaylee shifted into overdrive and dared the man to keep up. Half a mile later, he had closed the gap only a few strides and Kaylee was low on options and gears. A quick glance over her shoulder to check the distance, not caring if she knew that he was. A blue star seemed close enough to touch. A cool breeze made the hair on the back of her neck stand at attention. The wind or his breath, she questioned. Kaylee juked her hips and swung a hard left off the path. She pushed out her hands, blocking the mountain laurel branches from tearing across her face. She desperately double-clutched and tried to find one last gear. The off-path terrain was rocky. Moss-covered stones protruded from the ground at every angle. Kaylee kept her eyes down, but still her ankle went sideways. Her foot had wedged in a small crevice. The ankle audibly popped and she was no longer load-bearing. Down she went, hard. Kaylee landed face down atop a holly bush. Her forehead ricocheted off sharp rock. Blood for- flowed from the wound. The wind escaped from her lungs and a hollow cry spilled harmlessly from her lips. Less than a foot away, her eyes focused on the body. Her lungs filled with the stench of minutes old death. Her mouth was a mixture of dirt and blood. Jack off the beaten path. Estelle Cummings zipped her maroon satin silver apostles jacket. Embroidered angel wings filled the back of the jackets. The wind had picked up and added layer to help her old bones stay somewhat warm. She pulled the flaps of her hat down over her ears and started her patrol through the park. Each apostle had a grid pattern to survey. Any sight of exposed genitals or nature jacking in progress was required to be radioed in, snapped a picture of as proof positive, and pursued kept to a distance. The group focused on justice, bolstering the police, and not increasing the members' medical bills. Current president, Moe Schlossberg, promised the mayor the Apostles would not interfere with ongoing law enforcement operations. Estelle continued slowly down the asphalt toward the children's carousel. The well-lit area was an unlikely location for a sighting, but orders were not to deviate from the route. She then would turn left, head back up toward the restrooms, and then across the edge of Ewan Pond. Rinse and repeat until her husband, Arthur, relieved her. Then it would be reruns of Columbo and chai tea until bed. Estelle continued her reconnaissance. She felt good this evening. The bad knee wasn't so sore and the new gloves kept the arthritis in her hands at bay. She stood at the halfway point between the carousel and the bathrooms when a noise caught her attention. Off to her right. Had she heard it, she thought? Someone in pain? An injured animal? How deep into the brush? Estelle wasn't sure. She tilted her head, contemplating if she'd imagined it. The sound repeated and doubt faded. Whatever it was, Estelle had to investigate. Mo had warned about wild animals at night, but those words didn't matter this evening. The Silver Apostles protected, and Estelle needed to shift her Crocs from leisure to sport mode. I'm coming, was all Estelle managed. Her volume wasn't louder than the noise she had heard before. She pulled out her tactical flashlight and waded in. Estelle wasn't bushwhacked over 20 feet before she came to a clearing and surveyed the scene. Jesus Christ on a crutch, she thought. Two bodies! The light moved across the clearing. Her mind, feeling not as well as her knee, struggled to keep up. The two bodies laid close, their heads roughly three feet apart. The man's body was face down, topless, with a pair of khakis around his calves strange enough the man's underwear was firmly in place was this a nature jacker she thought caught mid-jack by someone else one case closes and a murder investigation opens she thought the woman was on her back and dressed in the latest belly bearing second skin workout gear despite the weather don't judge you'd flaunt it too estelle glanced at the woman's ample bosom it rose and fell oh my god she's breathing stop gawking. seize the moment The woman's right arm reached out toward Estelle, and another moan escaped from her lips. Estelle instinctively took a step back. The hand was relentless. She ignored the woman's pleas. You're alive, and I've got a job to do, honey, she thought. Crime scene, 101. But the woman endured. She wiggled her body a couple of inches closer. The hand stretched out and tugged on Estelle's pant leg. Persistent little tart. Estelle reached into her jacket pocket and fumbled with her radio. Her gloves, a tremendous help an hour ago, were a detriment now. She shoved them into her pockets and radioed Mo for reinforcements. Document everything, Mo said. Touch nothing. I'll call the police. Mo's words stuck this time. Nudes weren't her thing, but technically the guy still had his drawers on. Estelle pulled out her phone and started documenting. The flash followed her light and captured snippets of the crime scene. But down below, the arm endured. Hold on, honey, Estelle said. You look the worst for wear, but I'm busy at the moment. Put that hand to better use. Pressure on your wound. Head cuts look worse than they are. I need to document the scene before the local cops run roughshod and contaminate it. Estelle continued documenting. Snap. A yellow ball cap off to this body's right. A green snake stitched across the front depicted a Gadsden flag. Snap. A folded polo, tiki torch-embroidered emblem over the breast pocket lay folded and off to the side. Snap. The body, lying face down. Snap. Further down. The man's back to his underwear and crumpled khakis. Snap. 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 Estelle grabbed multiple wide-range sweeping pictures of the clearing. Just like they trained you, she thought. Her eyes moved across the dead man. Infamous nature jacker, no more. Someone didn't take... Kindly to his sinning, they catch you in the act or cleanin' up? She turned and snapped off a half dozen pictures of the woman. The blood continued to flow freely from her head wound. Ma'am, help. The tendons in the woman's neck strained as she lifted her head and tried to lock eyes with Estelle. The voice, softer and more pleading, desperate, she had maneuvered a couple of inches towards Estelle. Help's on the way, sweetheart, don't you worry. I'm gonna walk out to the path and lead them in. Here's a handkerchief. Apply some pressure to that. Use the outside. You don't want to know what's inside. Estelle led the rescue contingent through the bushes and prickly holly. The scene hadn't changed in the five minutes since she handed over the handkerchief. It now rested, unused, on the ground by the woman's outstretched hand. Estelle stepped to the back of the clearing and let the professionals do their job. She added her light to the two city-issued ones crisscrossing the area. Moe Schlossberg arrived on the scene, out of breath, with the authorities. Detective Claude Maud had received a call from dispatch and arrived with the ambulance. Each civil servant was missing a partner because of the recent budget cuts and COVID-related call-outs. Both handed Moe their lights, and he stood off to the side to light the area as the men set about their work. Movement on the far side of the clearing caught Estelle's eye and Moe's beam. Beyond Detective Maud. Two men had joined to watch the party. They stood single file, one angling for a better view over the larger shoulders. Looky-loo, she thought, wanting a story to tell, or just living vicariously through Johnsville public servants. The man in front was overweight and dressed for winter. gore tex she gasped. Purple gloves, purple cuffs from gloves shoved deep in the pockets spilled out. Estelle's eyes moved up and caught a swath of white collar? A clerical collar? Perhaps I misjudged. Maybe the police automatically call the church? Last rites and all? A pair of boxy black glasses rested on the priest's nose as he watched. He noticed her staring and gave a slight nod of acknowledgement. Estelle smiled. The second man stood behind the priest. He craned his neck for a better view. The drawstrings on his camouflage hoodie would have pulled tight, hiding his face, but not what looked like the Gadsden flag stitched on the left side. It moved side to side with each twist of his neck. Like a racist football helmet, she thought. Estelle turned her attention back to the woman in the handkerchief. She stepped forward to ret- retrieve it. Inherited from her grandmother, it would not be swept into an evidence bag if she could help it. Don't touch that evidence, Detective Maud said. He looked up from the dead body. And the rest of you, step back. We've got an active crime scene here. His voice carried authority and Estelle stopped dreading dead in her tracks. But that hanky's mine, Estelle said. I gave it to her before I flagged you down. No one has tampered with a thing. I've got pictures. Mo trained us well. Leave it alone, Detective Maud repeated. I'll need copies of everything you have. We're short handed tonight. Take a couple dozen more. The more the merrier. If I need anything specific, I'll point it out. You'll be a help for once. Estelle ignored the shot across the Apostles' bow, Detective Maud returned to poking and prodding the body. To her right, the EMT had gotten the injured woman on her feet and threw her left arm across the back of his neck. Maud, I'm gonna get her into the bus and come back to give you a time of death on Tidy whitey there. Maud nodded and Estelle continued capturing all the body language, both dead and alive. between a jack and a hard spot. Estelle hadn't moved off the couch since she hung up with Mo. Ten minutes had passed as the clock struck midnight. Her mind had raced since she returned home, and Mo's information only sped up her neurons. Mo had received a call of his own that evening. A source within the police department called with an update to the evening's events. The dead man was Caleb Nichols, a card-carrying Gadsden group member, and a Jeanville for the anti-woke rally. The morning papers would report the untimely demise of Nichols, now branded the Locust Valley Park Flasher, as an accidental fentanyl overdose. Additionally, the hospital discharged the woman with a high ankle sprain and a few stitches and a concussion. Estelle understood bureaucracy from her years at Jeanville's division of water and sewer. The official story would be the man wanted to get his groove on before he got his nature jack on. Hypoxia shut down his brain before the khakis reached his ankles. In the end, Nichols had done the police a solid, did himself in and saved the city further investigation expense, and as for Kaylee's creep, he sounded more like the guy than Caleb. Case closed as far as the authorities considered, but Estelle sat unconvinced. Doubt crept in. What about his buddy, she thought. Maybe his butt buddy? Not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm not making this up, right? Estelle remembered the hoodie's body language. Aside from moving head, he shifted his weight from foot to foot. Nervousness? Tweaking? Counting his lucky stars, he didn't get the bad batch? Maybe a post-anti-woke March rendezvous gone wrong? Why didn't he speak to Maud if he knew Caleb? Either way, CSI Vegas taught her criminals love to return to the scene. Were there more clues I missed? Nothing adds up. Early on said Alzheimer's was a bitch, but the official explanation seemed too neat. There had to be something she couldn't remember and that Maude overlooked. Did the hood and drawstrings hide Telltale's meth bug scratches? Had any of her pictures captured his face as he stretched over the priest's shoulder? As the clock struck 1 a.m., Estelle smelled a cover-up, and that was something, considering she had lost her sense of smell with that first wave of COVID. She leapt up and followed the moonlight across the room to her computer. The pictures needed a closer look. Enhance, as they said on all the hip streaming crime dramas. The last gaps of air flushed from the Keurig nozzle. The wafting smell of hazelnut filled the small space. Estelle ignored the coffee. Imaginary toothpicks would hold her eyelids open. Ben, don't break, she silently hoped. The now-amateur sleuth had spent the past two hours reviewing 57 photos. Those prior to Maud's arrival and those after he ordered her to continue. In the morning, she would copy them to a USB drive and provide it to Maud. Case closed, right? He'd only dump them into an evidence bag, never to be reviewed. I still needed sleep. She was past arguing with herself at this hour, yet her eyes remained glued to the desktop folder. The one containing six pictures she deemed pertinent. She clicked. The folder opened. Hold tight, toothpicks. The front door slammed and Estelle's head lifted off the desk. She regretted not pulling the shades last night and squinted at the small clock in the upper corner of the monitor. 8.45 a.m. Arthur had headed out for his morning breakfast at Marini's Deli. She called out to make sure. Her voice echoed through the small apartment. Estelle stood and rubbed the gunk from her eyes. She looked at her notes from last night's research. A small pile of printed photos lay next to the keyboard. She reached for them and rifled through. IMG-2247, Estelle deemed it the most promising. The image was a shot of Caleb Nichols from the waist down. Aside from the untouched wallet, she noticed a small scrap of paper sticking out the back pocket. Despite the pixelization, Estelle made out the ink on the dog-eared corner. That partial logo looks familiar, she thought. Mulberries, aka the Grease and Go. Johnny's recent venture into adult entertainment, the club logo was an upside-down pineapple with a shooting star arcing out of the base. Mo came up with the nickname along with those council members who adamantly voted against the business license. Estelle was familiar with the location. Mo had scheduled pickets the first few weekends Mulberry's was open. She didn't partake, but Arthur had, in fears of losing a standing with the organization. Did Caleb visit Mulberry's? Or was it just another place to harass the good people of Jeanville after the anti woke march? She was also very familiar with the multicolored wristbands all Mulberry's patrons were required to wear. IMG twenty two fifty three highlighted one. It lay on the ground, 10 feet from Caleb, in a pile of what Estelle first assumed to be common park trash. Someone has shed the trash pile beneath a small bush. The filthy rainbow wristband, a Taco Bell wrapper, receipt from from Porbiggle's Badoga for a six-pack and a bottle of Triple Rush, set empty bottles, and a white Styrofoam takeout box. Estelle had done a quick search through Triple Rush and learned it was the leading brand of animal nitrate, a.k.a. poppers, a common party favor at Mulberry's. The trash belonged to Caleb, or to his murderer, she thought. All of this screams potential hookup gone wrong, or an argument in Caleb's position to throw off suspicion. Yet none of Estelle's theories aligned with the official story. If the police couldn't find justice for Caleb, she could try. The murder of even the most racist white nationalist didn't need to be covered up in order to stem the public's anxiousness regarding the nature jacker. IMG-2241 depicted Detective Maud standing over Caleb. Estelle instead focused on the men standing single file at the edge of the clearing. A few things stood out. The priest, the collar were clear, his hands buried in his jacket pockets, the purple gloves peeking out, chasing with clashing with yellow mustard jacket. Fashion faux pas, but no more, she thought. The remaining pictures provided the best views of Hoodie's shielded face. Someone might recognize the nose, scars, or some other feature. The shadows and vague angles were all she had at the moment. After a quick shower, Estelle placed her notes and pictures in her bag. While Mulberry's wasn't open yet, authors' past protestings indicated a cleaning crew and some operational employees would be on site, getting ready to open the place for the lunch rush. Someone there had to recognize Hoodie, or possibly point her in another direction. Estelle crept down the building's front steps, where the morning's headlines greeted her. Locust Valley Park flasher found dead. Police deem park safe for families again. Estelle pursed her lips and shook her head. The narrative was already being cast, and she feared not being able to catch up. The morning wind whipped down Baker Street and through Estelle's layers. She stood lookout at the corner of Baker and McNulty Avenue with a clear view of Mulberry's brick front. Closed wooden shutters hid any movement on the establishment's first floor. Estelle caught the occasional shadow on the second floor, where the view was unobstructed. Estelle crossed the street and moved closer. Front door didn't budge. Not surprising. had to try, she thought. She continued down Baker to the alley that separated Mulberry's from Pearl Nail Salon. The wind died with her first step onto the cobblestones. Trash dumpsters lined the right side and Estelle held her breath. Something caught her attention as she passed the second dumpster. A side door propped open by a small wooden stool. Debate filled her head. Should I wait for someone to make the next trip out with the trash? Or slip in and play stupid? It wouldn't be the first time pretending to be a little older and more confused helped Estelle with her endgame. She stepped around the stool and into Mulberry's. The back room was dark, the same for an adjoining hallway. Enough morning light crept in to help Estelle not crash into something. A light at the end of the hall drew her forward. The next space was open and boxes lined the walls. A storage room, she thought. A flash to her right, a young man in a white t-shirt glared. "'Excuse me, sir,' she said, trying to sound confused. The man stepped back, surprised. He tilted his head and then spoke, "'No hablo inglés. H- "'Have you seen this man?' Estelle held up a picture of hoodie. The man shook his head and shrugged. Estelle wasn't sure if that was no or no, I don't understand. Estelle nodded. While he didn't speak to her, she knew it would be seconds before he would to a co-worker or supervisor. Then someone would force her out the side door and back to square one. Maybe I could... The grip from behind on her biceps was vice-like. The surprise caught her and caused her to drop the photos. She glanced down as they landed, a few face down, the rest with various iterations of hoodie staring up. Pain radiated down from Estelle's forearms and her fingers curled into inoperable fists. Fear flowed from her overactive brain and something else trickled down the inside of her thigh, too scared to twist and face her assaultant assailant even if she wanted to. Get out now! The calmness in the voice sent another wave of terror through her. The assailant's fingers let up for a split second and then wrapped around her arms tighter and spun Estelle toward the dark hallway. She stumbled when the push from behind wasn't subtle, more leakage, and embarrassment replaced pain for a second i'm sorry can can i get my photos estelle squeaked out truth be told she could reprint them when she got home after changing her pants but she wanted something to remember the man by move a second push came for your own safety don't come here asking questions estelle dug her feet in at the end of the hallway both of her personal floodgates appeared closed the open door to the outside was almost within reach she bit her lip and took her shot I need to know if you recognize the man in the pictures. He might have been here recently. Please, I I think he was involved in something bad. The police... Estelle anticipated one last push out the door, but the force behind it was more than expected. She stumbled across the last bit of flooring and out the back door. The voice boomed from within the club. Don't come back. Stop coming around and asking about the park. The door slammed. The deadbolt turned. Estelle stood in the alley, staring, she of wet pants and indecision. Had the police been here asking questions, doing their due diligence? Does that mean I'm on the right track? What was their next avenue of investigation? Because I sure as hell don't have one. The only thing Estelle positively knew was she had to go home and change clothes. One-eyed jacks are wild. One hot shower and a change of clothes later, Estelle was back at her desk. Author hadn't returned yet, meaning he was having fun at the deli with the other old gossiping fools. Lunch, a hastily made deviled ham with salt and vinegar chips, sat untouched. Her photos opened across the top half of the monitor. Search results for Caleb Nichols Gadsden Group filled the bottom half. Estelle scrolled through the pages of news articles. Some detailed the unfortunate death of the First Amendment advocate, protest in Jeanville City Council's woke agenda, others the accidental overdose of a public masturbating insurrectionist. Estelle scrolled until she found a hit that wasn't news. A click brought up Caleb Nichols profile on Storm Space, the white Christian nationalist version of Facebook. She hoped some of the social media posts could fill in her blanks. Perhaps Caleb had made some braggadocious posts regarding affiliations, friends, or associates. A man proud of his hate and heritage had kept his page unlocked, open to all. Estelle spent 20 minutes scrolling through posts, pictures, and the occasional shaky videos. She scribbled down notes and quickly composed a brief bio of the man. Caleb Nichols, single and heavily tattooed, has served as the sergeant of arms of the Gadsden's group's Green Mountain chapter. Another click brought up the chapter's storm space page. Pictures flooded the feed. Estelle scrolled. Photo of past marches filled the screen, immediately followed by post-event partying. One picture caught her eye. It was different from the others, and was uploaded 11 months ago. The group stood on the steps of a church. Dressed in their best khakis, and embroidered polos, Staring ahead while a second photographer, off to the far left, took another angle. A chapter meeting, she thought? They should have told the other photographer to step out of the frame. But the church drew her attention. The building wasn't nondescript. Estella recognized the decorative front, Jeanville's very own holy name of Jesus. Not that she'd ever gone, but she and Arthur would pass it on trips to the urgent care. What were these thugs doing in Jeanville then, Estelle thought. She couldn't recall any other rallies. Her cursor moved across a picture. Someone had tagged faces. Caleb Nichols was right of center. Her eyes moved past the rest of the front row and then the second row. The mouse froze. She rubbed her eyes. Bingo. A shiver rolled down her spine from head to bottom. A shell clenched tight. Second row, third from the left. Hoodie. She'd bet her dwindling savings on it. The mouse hovered over the tag. Lance Stone. She clicked and the browser loaded his profile. Stone had a locked down page. The profile picture wasn't a clear shot of the man, but an old painting of Ethan Allen, saber in hand. Proud green mountain boy, she thought. Estelle had a name. She knew who she had to tell. Well, Estelle jotted down the steps taken to identify the potential game-breaker and headed outside. Would Detective Maud be in his office? Estelle should have called him, but wanted to see the surprise on his face when she showed up and laid out what she assumed had transpired. Would he reopen the case? No, more like hand me a junior detective badge and a pan on the head, she thought. But worth a damn try. As she came upon the intersection of Richwood and Aura, Estelle noticed a group of young men loitering in front of the pork beagle bodega. I always say that word wrong. Bodega. Each wore a crew neck with the blue star. The shirt had made her pause. Could one of these men be Kaylee's creep, she thought? Caleb's murderer? How many cowboy fans were there in a small city on the outskirts of Philadelphia? She made note to stop at the store and catch the clerk on duty at the same time stamped on the trash receipt. Also, to see if the young men had moved on. Perhaps she could surreptitiously take pictures and show them to Kaylee. The gang angle was her weakest lead and firmly on the back burner. The clerk was her best chance. If he could identify Stone as the customer or with Caleb, the circumstantial evidence would support her theory. What if there's video footage? Relax, hon. What are you going to do? Drop a subpoena and demand the owner turn it over? But she knew someone who could. And that's exactly why you need to reopen the case, Estelle said. Caleb Nichols didn't overdose. Stone was there, and it was murder or manslaughter. Go pick him up. He'll confess. Those people have very thin shells, keeping in all the gooey cowardliness. Estelle was sure she noticed Detective Maud's eyes glaze over less than two minutes into her presentation. He leaned back on the edge of his metal desk, his right hand rubbing his chin. From the low-profile visitor chair, Estelle looked up at him. To her, the man was pretending to contemplate something. Humoring me, she thought. It's an interesting turn of events, Miss Cummings. I'll pass on the information to our cold case squad. Cold case, cell said. Caleb probably hasn't left the morgue yet. Maud stood up, walked around his desk, and sat down. Family claimed the body this morning, local priest in tow, to oversee the transfer. No reason for us to hold it. Case closed. Hence, cold case squad. Estelle read the detective's body language. The conversation was over as far as he was concerned. She would have to show herself out. For emphasis, Maud reached for the filed folder on the floor and began leafing through the papers. Estelle stood and pushed the chair forward. The screeching didn't phase Maud. Estelle grabbed the door handle and then turned around. And detective, you're wrong. I may not convince you, but at some point, someone smarter and with real tenacity will. "'Good day, Mrs.' Estelle pulled the door shut. Maud's words hit the glass frame and fell to the floor. Estelle looked back at the precinct as she reached the street. She shook her head. All he did was humor me. She needed to regroup and gather her plans before marching forward. I took my best shot and struck out. Was there a forward? What am I going to do? Go home and try to dig up an address for Stone and show up on his porch with a rhubarb pie?' She glanced at her watch. Still a few hours before the time stamp on the trashed receipt, she thought. But Estelle knew if she went home, she'd wallow in self-pity. Never rebuild the self-initiative to leave the apartment. Destination? Poor Beagle Bodega. Every time. I can't say that word. At the very least, I can pick up something for dinner. Some comfort food sounds good right now. Estelle smiled to herself. Maybe she was taking the demotion to junior pretend investigator better than she expected. The bell above the door rang as Estelle shuffled into the store. She had the photos of stone and a blown-up copy of the receipt in her tote bag. With a familiar chime, the clerk turned his head, nodded, and went back to his book. Should I take that as a compliment or a diss? I can shoplift, Estelle thought. She picked up a small basket from the end cap and roamed the aisles for dinner inspiration. After not finding everything she needed for, surprise, author, it's tuna casserole again, Estelle placed her items next to the register. The clerk had put down his book, finger at the ready-to-punch-in prices on the register from another era. Estelle waited until he bagged the groceries. The clerk didn't wear a name tag, so she winged it. Excuse me, young man, do you know those men who were hanging out in front earlier? The clerk gave a quick shake of his head. The ones with the blue stars on their shirt, Estelle said. They didn't harass me or anything, if that's what you're thinking. I'm sorry, I didn't see anyone, the clerk nervously replied. Find everything okay? Yes, and I understand, she said, but perhaps you could find me, help me with something else. Nothing to do with them, swear. The clerk tilted his head and shrugged. Estelle drudged onward. I found this receipt in my yard with the pile of trash someone had dumped. She held up the picture of the receipt. Hey, once it leaves the store, not our problem, the clerk said. Take it up with the cops or a city hall. Nothing like that. I, I just have a simple question. Estelle handed him the photo of Stone at the crime scene and on the church steps. I'm looking for the man in the picture. He might have made the mess. The clerk took the photos. He squinted, moving the image closer to his eyes. An eyebrow raised, and Estelle leaned in, hoping to meet good news halfway. A second passed, and then another. Sure, I was here yesterday, he said. I remember this guy, and in that order, Estelle's heart skipped a beat. He was nervous about anyone seeing him take a popper bottle off the display. The clerk pointed to a life-size cardboard cutout of a well-coiffed man in a speedo, moving his finger slowly back towards the crime scene photo. Bingo! Estelle exclaimed. If her knees were shot, she would have jumped for joy. Hit the road, Jack. Estelle's adulation was as short-lived as her hope that Detective Maud would have taken her theory remotely seriously. The clerk's finger came back to rest on the Kodak picture paper, directly atop the priest, Father Chubby of the Black Glasses. But I didn't see any priest collar on this dude when he was here, the clerk said. Estelle opened her mouth, but nothing came out. How could I have been so wrong, she thought. Estelle slumped back at her desk, head in hands. She couldn't remember the walk from the bodega, putting the key in the door or anything much the last hour. Dinner prep would have to wait. I was so far off base. How? Well, it's not like you've had any training, formal or otherwise. You're winging it, girl. Surprise, this is your first stumble. She picked up the group shot on the church steps. A feeling came over her, the same one that made her tilt her head when she first saw the photo online. This time, she didn't move on, but looked closer. Estelle opened the digital copy on her desktop. Enhance, she whispered and zoomed in. Her eyes focused on the men on the steps and moved left. Slowly, as not to lose focus. And there it was. How had she missed it earlier? The rush to identify Stone and the adulation immediately after was obvious. Estelle moved her mouse to the left of the steps and enlarged a little bit more. Not standing with the Green Mountain Boys, but off to the side, the figure stood. The telltale collar was pixelated, but visible, as were the doughy body and the black frames. As she opened a browser, she was soon reading the bio for Father Justin Ratty on the Holy Name of Jesus About Us webpage. Estelle pushed her chair back and took a deep breath. Her theories were soupy with very little substance, That needed a bit of flour to thicken the mess up before she could reach out to Detective Maud. Like, he'd take my call. The last thing he wants to do is listen to you and fuck up his 2023 case closure rate. Plus, he's probably caught another case already. You're long gone from his memory banks. Maybe, if I see it in front of me, something thickens the soup. Estelle picked up her pencil, crossed her legs, and set the legal pad on her thigh. Caleb equals dead. Green Mountain Boy, fellow GMB at crime scene, Lance Stone, silent, initial suspect, still strong contector. Pile of Trash, receipt from Porbigo Bogota with empty party favors, purchased by Father Ratty, who is also at the crime scene observing, standing with Stone. Photo of all three at GMB event, two posing and Ratty capturing the image for posterity's sake, Stone and Ratty equal cahoots question mark? Kaylee Unsub. Blue star equals gang sign question mark? Initiation question mark? Find a racist and kill question mark? If you're working this lead, you're hopelessly lost. She was positive this was no accidental overdose, just too many coincidence. I know more than before, Maud is wrong. Definitely rough sex gone wrong or international murder by one or two individuals. Maybe a gang. Estelle put down the pad. Lance Stone, she thought. Who and where are you? Ten minutes later, she had exhausted her limited online toolbox and came up empty. She didn't know if Stone was local or the trip for the church photo op was just that. But there was one address she knew. Estelle picked up her phone, opened the Uber app, and left a very short voicemail for Detective Maud. Estelle stepped out of the ride chair and glanced at her watch. 4:37 p.m. She had left a note for Arthur with instructions on how to start dinner. The excuse for being out was neither here nor there, as he wouldn't question her upon coming home. After all, they weren't jealous newlyweds. The faux marble stairs led up the white brick and glass, stained glass building. The church was quite a piece of architecture and seemed out of place for Jeanville. Estelle stepped back and imagined the GMBs assembled there for her group shot. She moved her head to the left, an oak tree, and small white bench at the base. That's where he stood to take his picture, she thought. Ratty had served the parishioners of this diocese for five years. It astonished Estelle at the amount of information the church provided online regarding rectory employees. Prior to his arrival in Jeanville, Raddy had been a frequent flyer on the Catholic Church's rotational tour, seven parishes in the years preceding the move. A lot more to this guy than hanging out at crime scenes with white supremacists, she thought, dead and alive. Hey, we need to talk. The voice, demanding, came from Estelle's left. The tone brought her back to reality. Her biceps radiated with heat, the bruises. The pain was genuine enough for Estelle to wince his voice. Was that the mystery man from Mulberry's? She wasn't sure of the voice, but the burning in her arms swayed the argument. Estelle's head whipped around to confront her bully from earlier. Big man pushing a little. Lance Stone stood on the edge of the parking lot, no mistaking the face, despite the distance. He stood atop a cement curb stop and pointed. There was no question who he motioned for. Estelle swallowed. Hard. She looked up at the large wood doors and then to Stone. Stop! Stone said, and he stepped off the curb. Estelle hobbled forward, wheeling her knees, up the steps, into the church sanctuary. All right, Jack, we reached the deliberation.
1: I feel like There aren't options. (laughs) I feel (laughs) like it's two people and it's probably both of them. Okay.
0: Well, so Estelle Estelle got more um, out of her sport mode crocs than she bargained for, didn't she?
1: I think she deserves it. I I was a little
0: shocked how she treated uh, poor Kaylee. (laughs) Yeah, she deserved
1: to have to pee herself over that. Get your head smashed in. Screw you, Estelle.
0: Okay, so here's a recap of the suspects in Caleb Nichols' death. Uh, The Locust Valley Park Flasher... If he's still living free. If he. Father, 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 Father Justin Ratty, the priest of the Holy Name of Jesus Church. Okay. Lance Stone, the Gasden Group Green Mountain Boy who wanted to talk to Estelle. Alrighty. And Detective Claude Maud. It would explain why he won't listen to her.
1: It would.
0: Okay. So here are the clues that she's working with. Okay. So Kaylee was being chased by a man wearing a star similar to a Dallas Cowboy emblem. She cut into the woods to get away, fell, hurting herself and finding Caleb Nichols' body. Yes. Caleb Nichols was an enforcer for the Gadsden Group Green Mountain Boys. He died in the park by overdosing on fentanyl, face down with his pants around his ankles, but his underwear was where it's supposed to be.
1: Interesting.
0: In the front row of onlookers was Father Justin Ratty, wearing a yellow Gore-Tex coat with purple gloves hanging out of his pockets. Next okay. to him was Lance Stone, who wore a hoodie and covered his face. All right. Under the nearby shrub was a pile of trash, including a receipt from the name of the store that I butchered every time, Porbagle's <laughs> Bagoda. The party favors were bought by Justin father, Ratty. All righty interesting i said justin father ratty (laughs) father justin ratty let's get the words in their correct order outside poor beagle's pagoda was a group of young men wearing a similar symbol to what kaylee described
1: interesting
0: a photo showed caleb stone and father justin together in front of holy name of jesus church holy Name. so the question is who killed caleb and why was he the Locust Valley Park Flasher, or does Kaylee need to start running with a hungry Wattweiler with a fetish for wieners?
1: Okay, that was a weird thing to have to add on the end of that, Mom.
0: <laughs> I was keeping with the theme, Ken, set up.
1: I, I guess, but you took it to a different direction for no reason.
0: <laughs> There's a good reason. It was funny. I, I,
1: oh, my gosh graphic mom I don't, I don't need to hear you say that I, don't, I personally
0: do not need to
1: hear it's um ew anyway
0: just pretend your uncle said it instead of me that's creepier anyway, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it keeps getting worse you have to stop talking okay i'm stopping you talking so you can start talking
1: i i have no idea i don't think it's farther i don't think it's old father no. um I don't think it's the detective. He hasn't had enough like screen time for me to feel like he's a real contender mm-hmm. unless Ken Agatha Christie this bullshit <laughs> at which point I would be very mad at him. <laughs> um so the other guy's is
0: um so it's the flasher whoever he is if he's still alive. I don't
1: I don't think the guy who died was the actual flasher. Okay. I don't think what's his name Keith? Uh Caleb. Caleb wow i'm i suck at names when it comes to these podcasts <laughs> like the second we get to the deliberation all of them are gone but I you know you, you get you get a start
0: it's like you usually get the first sound right keith i no, do caleb
1: i i <laughs> hate it when authors like make two characters with the same first letter of their name i can't i can't tell them apart they have to have a different first letter that's that's my only thing yeah. i don't think we've had many people do that but still
0: i was surprised because even though kaylee and caleb are spelled completely differently They sound the same, and I didn't notice it when I was reading it to myself in prep for this, but when I read it out loud, I was like, oh, those sound very familiar. They sound very
1: (laughs) familiar, but they're also two very distinctive different characters, so it's pretty easy to keep them apart. One of them is a girl runner who, you know, isn't jacking off in the woods high on fentanyl. Anyway, I think it is um, Blue Star Bro who was chasing Caleb down.
0: Okay, Kaylee down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What was his name? He
0: doesn't have a name. <laughs> oh, he
1: doesn't have a name.
0: So Blue Star guy works. I I Well, I guess that would be the Okay, I'm going to add him to our list here.
1: I think Oh. Blue well, if he
0: wasn't even on the list. You guy. know who did it? So if he wasn't on the list, <laughs> clearly it's not him. Crap. Yeah, but readers of the anthology won't know. So I'm adding it to the list. So when when everybody listening buys the anthology will notice in this episode that there are five suspects, including Blue Scar Guy who chased K. Well, I guess it's not him, so I gotta <laughs> pick someone else. God damn it. Anyway. <laughs> um
1: crap, who are the other two guys? What were There's their names? There's the priest? I didn't, think father it was Justin. I didn't think it was the
0: father. There's Lance Stone. Lance. Um, who turned out to be the guy who chased Estelle out of whatever that mulberry is. Yeah. Um, and th- those are really the only two. The oh, flesh. I guess
1: I think it's Lance. I thought there were two guys who were kind of in that area. Never mind. I think it's Lance.
0: The two guys hanging out around the dead body were mm-hmm. Father Justin and, and Lance Stone. Lance.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's a scroll outside her window. Okay. I thought like, never mind. Anyway. Um, I guess I think it's Lance. I, I feel like it's morally incorrect to make Father the murderer, mm. but he's clearly in on it because him and Lance must be in cahoots or at the very least are familiar with each other.
0: Yes, they were both in the picture for the Green Mountain Boys.
1: It might be more of a father planned it all and Lance executed it because clearly one is the... Bronze, Yeah. And so I, think, I think it might be that kind of situation where it might be both of them. If not, then I guess I actually will change it to father. Yeah. Lance might have been the one to physically do it, but I don't think he was the one to go execute the or like to come up with the plan before executing yeah. it. I guess I'm going with father then. Okay.
0: I just want to say that you know, a lot of times we record these in the evening and right now we're recording this at about noon. And the window that Jack just saw the squirrel out of is actually sort of backlighting my screen, making it much harder for me to see than normal. That <laughs> and as I found out here in the Midwest, we do not have bordegas or bodegas, which may be part of the reason why I cannot say the word. <laughs> Apparently, that is a New York area, Philadelphia area, East Coast thing. Ken had to explain what it was to me. I'm like, we have convenience stores or we have mom and pop shops. I'm
1: gonna be honest. Even as he said it, I really was just thinking uh, gazebo. <laughs> I was just like, why is she shopping at a gazebo? <laughs> whatever, I, whatever. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> no. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, it is a small like mom and pop grocery store, maybe what we would call a like, convenience <laughs> store. But yeah, like nothing, it, it showed up in one of the other stories. Uh, one of Erica Obey's story, uh-huh. who, who lives in the Hudson Valley. And I was like, "Well, that's the second time I've seen that word. Nope, I don't know what it means. No, nope,
1: no idea. I was just imagining a gazebo, like a fa- a really fancy gazebo. It
0: was stuff to buy. Yeah, like a
1: a kiosk, but with somehow windows and a door and a really old cash register. I don't know. All right, let's get back to the damn stuff. Well, story. I wanted
0: to let people know we you know we we talked about. Um, the anthology and for those of you who are mystery readers do check out our print and ebooks the companion books for this season as well as season four a word before dying and season five move it or lose it are available now sometime when i get a couple minutes to put together i'll make the companions for seasons two and three the quarters and dimes from book sales do support the podcast and they keep gas in jack's tank and will help save up for the next hardware upgrade. He just informed me that he wants a new keyboard, so we need lots of nickels and dimes. All right, on to Call of Duty, Jack Ops. Estelle let out a long sigh of relief as the door closed behind her. She noticed several parishioners milling around the vestibule, safe, she thought, for the time being. She stepped to a narrow glass-stained window Stone sat on the top step his back to Estelle, the phone to his right ear. He carried on an animated conversation. Is he part vampire, Estelle wondered aloud? Can he cross the threshold? She stepped away and tried to lose herself in the crowd. Locating Ratty was still high on her to-do list, but also was finding a rear exit or a side one. Within the vestibule, a small sign showed the childcare room was to the left and confessional to the right. She never reached. She reached out for the nave doors but neither budged. Estelle stepped back. She contemplated going left. Childcare? Catholic priest? Makes sense. Enough with the stereotypes. Hey, I'm not the one transferring this guy, seemingly one step ahead of allegations. Estelle shook her head, turned and headed down the right hallway, making note to look for the red exit signs. The hallway was longer than Estelle expected and it turned left, running parallel to the nave. She found an exit sign pointing right, and as she reached the velvet ropes leading to the confessional, a small card table labeled, Keep our parish and each other healthy, stood next to the door. Wipes and 95 masks and a box of purple nitrile gloves, hand sanitizer and other supplies filled the table. She stopped and glanced down at the gloves. Something tickled the back of her brain, but a voice distracted her. A second later, the confessional door swung open and an absolved parishioner exited. A young girl kept her head down and followed the rug pattern toward the vestibule. Batter up, Estelle thought. Estelle navigated away through the ropes to the open door. She hoped a conversation with Ratty would clear everything up. Was all this a bunch of coincidences? Puzzle pieces she tried to force together. Maybe Maud is right about all of this, she thought. Coincidences. Send me home to prepare for tomorrow night's Bridge Club. Your turn to shuffle, Jessica Fletcher. The rest of the table would break up with laughter, and Bertie would knock over the French onion dip. Estelle heard the young girl's voice again, but this time it was louder. She looked down the hallway. Stone stood towering over the girl. His back to Estelle, but clearly on the hunt. Fight or flight flowed through her elderly veins. The exit door was ten steps, in the wrong direction. Stone's direction. She picked the closer option, flight. Estelle strode into the confessional and closed the door. She glanced around before sitting. Safe, for the time being, she thought, and exhaled. Shit. The girl's voice distracted her from the real reason she was hiding. Hiding from Stone was a bonus. But, Ratty, if I'm stupidly putting myself in danger, I might as well figure this out, even if it's only for my own peace of mind. A throat cleared a few inches to Estelle's left. It came through the latticed opening. She turned and squinted, but couldn't make out any of the priest's features. She dug deep for the opening line she had practiced on the ride over. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. It's been never since my last confession. May God, who has enlightened every heart, help you know your sins and trust in his mercy, the voice said. It's never too late to unburden yourself, Estelle. For the second time today, Estelle sprung a leak. Estelle composed herself and waited for the flow of embarrassment to work its way down to her knees before speaking. Justin, she said. Father, ratty, he corrected. And Estelle, everything set here is covered by the priest's penitent privilege. You have my word. Open your heart and confess. Estelle shifted in her seat from one bony, wet cheek to the other. She cursed her age and for the priest doing his homework. He's guilty, she thought. How else would he know about me? I'm getting too close for comfort. With a slight injection of confidence, Estelle pressed on. Why did you kill Caleb Nichols, she asked. I saw you at the crime scene, and I've got evidence plenty the police would be interested in. Let me stop you right there, Ratty said. Catholicism aside, it's a sin in any religion to make false accusations. But I'll play your little game. It's not like you're leaving. Estelle's mind turned to stone, literally. He was somewhere in the church, lurking, waiting. I'm filler in a tuna sandwich of death, she thought. I've called the police, Estelle said, grasping at anything, they know I'm here. Sanctuary, my dear, if history teaches us anything, I'm untouchable, Ratty said. He chuckled softly. Even with the warrant, the press will castrate city council as soon as the body cam footage of jack-booted thugs forcing their way through the front doors becomes public. Estelle shook her head. But what, Ratty challenged. Caleb was an altar boy for me years ago. So what? People reconnect after years all the time. Locust Valley is a public park. No laws against strolling in the evening. Your lack of concrete evidence is astounding. He learned you can't make threats over the past and be free to leave town. Goes for old women too. Ding. Estelle's half of the confessional lit up as her cell phone woke. She covered the screen with her hand as if she could hide the notification sound. All she could hear was her heart. Play Jewish Nancy Drew for all I care, Reddy said. But if you think I'm gonna let you leave with whatever you've recorded, you're mistaken. Confession is wrapping up for the day. When you step out, no one will be around. The hallway would have been closed off. At that point, we'll need to have a real heart-to-heart, preferably down in the rectory cellar. There is a tunnel between the two buildings, don't you know? Estelle's hand was on the door handle before Ratty finished a sentence. This wasn't the level of danger she had expected. She wished she had never walked over to investigate Kaylee's scream. Her heart thundered feet hit the tile floor. Her eyes adjusted to the influx of natural light, but not fast enough. The second step led straight into a brick wall. Estelle's face hit fabric and she craned her neck to look up. Stone! Estelle let out the scream of her life. The Jeanville Beacon, Police Arrest Priest for Murder and Dismantle Local Drug Distribution Network by Ken Garland. On Thursday afternoon, officials from the Jeanville Police and Gloucester County Sheriff's Office held a joint press conference to announce an arrest in the murder of Caleb Nichols and related takedown of a local fentanyl distribution network. Jeanville detectives took Father Justin Ratty, late of Holy Name of Jesus, into custody on Thursday. The state's attorney is charging Ratty with homicide in the third degree. Detective Claude Maud would not comment on motive, He stated a set of purple nitrile gloves retrieved from the park on the night of the murder tested positive for granulated fentanyl. Maud fully expects to definitively prove the gloves contain the DNA of Father Ratty. In a related matter, the Gloucester County Narcotics Task Force announced the arrest of four members of the Gladstone Group's Green Mountain Boys chapter on charges of fentanyl possession with intent to distribute the arrest result from a year-long undercover operation by Jeanville Sergeant Stoney Lancer. Sheriff Andrew Andrus stated, Sergeant Lancer would receive the department's highest award for bravery in the line of duty. Maud also thanked the public for their tips in this case, stating, The murder of Mr. Nichols would not have been solved quickly but for the diligent work by a member of the community. When asked if the member of the community was the same elderly woman taken to Underwood Memorial Hospital after suffering a heart attack at the holy name of Jesus, Detective Maud declined to answer. The detective also would not address public concern regarding if the arrest of Ratty means that the Locust Valley Park flasher is still on the loose. Estelle folded the newspaper and placed it on the hospital bed table. Her eyes rose to watch author as he... Squirmed in the uncomfortable visitor's chair, and then down to the tasty rice pudding. All the while, half a dozen monitors hummed and beeped around the bed in concert. Somewhere, deep in the back of her mind, the lyrics to Tainted Love began to scroll. The end. All right, so that last reference, if you look up on YouTube, there was a commercial done to Tainted Love, I think by it was one of the one of the denim companies, maybe Levi's. Yeah. And the guy's in like a hospital bed and all the beeping and it starts going to the rim of Tainted Love. <laughs> it is an extremely cool video. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it lately, watch it again. It it's somebody was talented there.
1: Well, I I'm happy I didn't go with stone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was interesting. Uh the only thing I thought during that whole thing was you have your phone. Call the police. She had she has her phone and she's recording it.
0: Yep. Call the police. It's dexterity, man. She's elderly. You can't call record and call the police. You
1: don't have to record, just call the police. <laughs> you know what you can do when you call the police? Huh? The police automatically record all their
0: messages. Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess you'd have to put it on, turn the volume down so you didn't hear the 911 operator going, ma'am, can you can you state your, what is your emergency, ma'am? Where are you? Can yeah, you give but, us information, ma'am? Uh, <laughs> no matter what, I was just kind of like, she,
1: I don't think she thought much of it through. Yeah. I think she won most of it and then almost killed a girl. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of the story. I hated her from the start. If that happened towards the end, I would have been like, come on, lady. The very first thing you learn about her is that when she has a dying girl in front of her, her priority is taking pictures.
0: (laughs) I think she gave her a used tanky. Like, Just use the outside. You don't want to know what's on the inside. She didn't
1: use it. Didn't I don't know if it. you noticed. She had a head injury. <laughs> head injuries do not look worse than they are. They are worse. <laughs> they are pretty bad. You don't just go, eh, it's only a head wound. It's just only a scratch. not dead yet. <laughs> just a flesh wound. No. <sighs> Dumbass lady. Anyway, anyway. that was uh, also... I, <laughs> I like how Ken made the reporter in the end his own name.
0: Oh, the kid! Yeah, yeah. Ken Go- yeah. I did like
1: that. <laughs> anyway, that was so I good did story.
0: a I did a little research on the term "jacking off." So the term is a quote vulgar expression for masturbating, according to Merriam-Webster. The etymology of the work dates back just over a, a little over a hundred years to 1916, and they suppose that it is a derivation of the term "jerking off." So. Speaking of synonyms, jerking off, jacking off, beating off, whacking off, choking the chicken, rubbing one out, wanking, or just plain masturbating. And I guess a more modern term of it, according to one source that I have, is faps. Is that how you say that? Yes. (laughs) Says the middle-aged woman. I don't know how you say that word. So what was interesting is that the word masturbate itself is not that old of a word. Merriam-Webster says it comes from the Latinist, from the Latin masturbatus, past participle of masturbari. And this was used in the first time in the late uh, 1830s, 1839. When I put masturbari into good old Google Latin to English translator, it came back as to be mastered. And from there I went down a rabbit hole. There's this thing on Merriam-Webster called time traveler, that tells you other words that appeared in print for the first time that year. So 1839 was a busy year in the world of word creators. So here are just a couple that I found amusing. Alcohol by volume. I don't know what they used to measure alcohol by, but it wasn't until 1839 that it was by volume. Boardwalk, no boardwalks prior to 1839. Commando. No, I did not go down the rabbit hole to find out if that meant, you know, the military personnel or going sans undergarments. Expressman? That one caught my attention because in season two or three, remember we did a couple of those stories. What was the name of the guy who started the private eye? Yes.
1: Pinkerton. I can't tell if my microphone is ever on or off.
0: Yes, Pinkerton. Um... And a number of, one of the we did was Pinkerton and the Expressmen, uh, Firefighter. I don't know what they were before that, but they were not firefighters. This one, I just love the way it was spelled. Highfalutin. H-I-G-H-F-A-L-U-T-I-N. I don't know how I would have spelled that word, but I would have got it wrong. Industrialist, which makes sense because we were just starting to enter the, uh, what is that called? The Industrial Revolution? Yeah. Piggy. I found that one was amazing. Somebody had to use the word piggy before 1839. I wonder if the first time it was written down was part of that children's rhyme. This old piggy went to market. Snakebite. Again, how was that not a word before 1839? Trademark. Probably again goes to the Industrial Revolution. And Victorian. So Victorian refers to the era uh, when Queen Victoria reigned, which was in the UK from 1837 to 1901, which made me wonder, why did it take two years to come up with the term Victorian? Links to where I got this fascinating pieces of research are in the show notes. So little about our friend Ken Harris. Ken retired from the FBI after 32 years as a cybersecurity executive. With over three decades of writing intelligence projects for senior government officials, Ken provides unique perspectives on the conventional fast-paced crime thriller. That is an understatement. Ken's take on the conventional fast-paced crime thriller is, is awesome. He is the author of From the Case Files of Steve Rockfish, He spends his day with his wife, Nicolita, and their two Labradors, Shady and Chalupa Batman. I always say that word wrong, too. I don't know if he just calls him Batman, Chalupa, Chalupa. I wanted to put a T in there for some reason. Evenings are spent playing walkabout mini-golf and cheering on Philadelphia sports. Ken firmly believes Pink Floyd, Irish whiskey, and a Monte Cristo cigar are the only muses necessary. He's a native of New Jersey and currently resides in Virginia's Northern Neck. That wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Please do support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five star review. Check out our website, tgwolf.com, that's W O L F F.com forward slash podcasts, for links to this season's authors. Mysteries to Die For is hosted by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. Live Free or Die Jacking was written by Ken Harris. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Join us next, next week for a toe tag, that is the first chapter of a fresh new release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. And then be back in two weeks for one of my stories, The Skewered Jackalope Caper. All right, Jack, take us out.